The Lord be with you and with your spirit. Let us pray. O God of peace, who has taught us that in returning and rest we shall be saved, and in quietness and confidence shall be our strength. By your Holy Spirit, lift us, we pray, to your presence, where we may be still and know that you are God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. Can everybody hear me? Because I can't hear anything. Okay, good. All right. We have been talking about the sacraments, uh, particularly. So what is a sacrament? Yeah. An outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Uh, Meaning that in the sacraments, uh, in a very real sense, uh, God's invisible grace becomes visible. Um, that's actually really basically what we're talking about. Um, now, of course, is grace visible? No, it's not. <laughs> grace is grace is not visible at all, right? Can you can you see grace? No. Um, is is grace even a substance? This is a great question that theologians have wrestled with through the years. Uh, it's a great, you know, wonderful question, isn't it? Um, is grace a thing? Um, but yet we turn to the sacraments uh, because, precisely because we can't see God's grace, can we? And we, we, need, we need visible and indeed palpable means uh, by which we can not only, not only uh, perceive divine grace, but so that we can actually receive it. Um, and so what, what, we, what we teach regarding the sacraments is that the sacraments are given not only as this visible means, but also as an assurance uh, that we do, in fact, receive that grace. So I'll give you an example. Baptism, right? We never say when we, when we baptize somebody, maybe they have received the you know, washing of sin, right? Uh, we, don't, we don't say, maybe this, this, you know, this person becomes a child of God. We don't say that, um, and rightly so. What we instead say is that this happens. We're assured that it happens. So the sacraments are spoken of as, a mean, as means of grace. Um, now, last week we talked about marriage. That was, uh, that was quite a lovely conversation. And so this week we're going to actually be, begin with talking about the anointing of the sick. We're on page 131, and then we'll go on to the forgiveness of sins. So this is on page 66. What is the anointing of the sick? Through prayer and anointing with oil, the minister invokes God's blessing upon those suffering in body, mind, or spirit. Um, If you turn to James, actually let's do that now. James chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. James writes this, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Um, This word, of course, elders, is uh, that Greek word presbyteros, or presbyteroi in this case, uh, meaning often bearded ones, right, or uh, elders or uh, something like that. Um, And this is actually the the biblical word where we get the word priest down through the years. Um, So there's there's a biblical mandate, uh, and I think this is really key. Jesus, you know, what do we read of Jesus doing throughout throughout the Gospels? He heals the sick, right? How does he heal the sick? Primarily. Hey, he touches them. He puts his hands on them, he, and, and they're healed. Um, and the, the disciples are instructed to do the same thing, and we actually see them doing this. The, Jesus not only sets this pattern, but he teaches the disciples to do this, and they do it, and what do they find? Even they can heal. Um, so there is, this, there is this understanding in Scripture that, uh, that the gifts of healing are not only maintained by Christ himself, but are given to the disciples, given to the apostles uh, for healing the sick. Um, here in this answer we say, through prayer and anointing with oil. Now, why anoint with oil? 
seems like a rather strange thing to do, isn't it? What's that? Yeah, because we believe in the Holy Spirit, right? So how, how are, you know, this is this kind of great question is, um, in the Old Testament, you read constantly of people being anointed, right? And there's both kind of this anointing with oil and this kind of inward anointing, right? That's not visible, that's not made with oil. How does this happen? It's kind of dead this morning. You guys eat too much turkey. The Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit accounts for this anointing. Um, and so I carry, as do all priests, and if you want to, you know, kind of do a, an oil stock check, I carry anointing oil with me all the time in this, in this stock. Um, if you want to see it, it's basically just a little screw-off lid, um, and inside is a cotton ball that's covered in oil. Um, the bishop consecrates this oil every uh, Holy Week um, by tradition and, uh, and sends it home with all of us. Um, and so we keep bottles of oil around, and all, all the priests here have a bottle of oil with us that we can uh, fill this with um, for the purposes of anointing the sick. The minister invokes God's blessing upon those suffering in body, mind, or spirit. Now, it's important here that we delineate the kind of suffering that's going on. Um, this is a suffering of the body, okay, um, or the mind, or in spirit. Um, and by this, we mean uh, particularly, and I have to be clear about this, we mean particularly those illnesses which are not attached explicitly to sin, okay? Um, now, this is important because sometimes we get confused. Um, somebody might say, well, I feel bad. I feel really bad. I feel really awful. Well, Why? Do you have an illness? Or is there something else going on? Um, this is an important thing to delineate between because here's the, here's the thing. We offer unction for those who are sick, okay? Not for those who are sinning, right? What's, what's offered for those who are in, the, in a state of sin? Confession and absolution, right? You don't need to be anointed. You don't need the, you, in particular, you might, it's, you might actually. But what you primarily need is to be reconciled to God, um, so it's important to delineate between the two. I've often experienced the, the, the deal that sometimes people will be in a state of deep, unrepentant sin, and they'll just say, I feel bad, could you anoint me? Well, that's not what's going on. <laughs> so you have, to, you have to be clear about this in your own mind, what's going on. And I find that this is something that we actually have to talk about now. In the old days, and I think this is important to say as well, in the old days, uh, unction, which is what this is often referred to, um, unction was, was only used uh, for those who were on their deathbeds, um, only those who are about to die. And often, uh, for instance, Roman Catholics, it was called uh, extreme unction, meaning in extremis, uh, when you're dying, uh, we administer this to you. Um, now, uh, that kind of New Testament position has been taken, which is much more in the realm of, hey, if you're sick, we can anoint you uh, for healing. Um, but let's ask this question. What grace does God give in the anointing of the sick? As God wills, the healing given through anointing may bring bodily recovery from illness, peace of mind or spirit, and strength to persevere in adversity, especially in preparation for death. Okay, so there's several, several things here. And all as God wills, I think this is important. So we don't, we're not sort of faith healing here. We're not sort of saying, hey, uh, every time I anoint somebody, they get healed. Uh, is that what we're saying? No. What we are saying is that every time, every time someone is anointed for healing, they do receive grace, but that grace may be, may be used for bodily healing. It may be that that grace is given uh, for uh, peace of mind uh, in the midst of suffering, uh, strength to persevere, um, and, and I've seen, I've seen all of them. Uh, in fact, um, I've seen people anointed. I've told you, I've told this story before. I've seen people anointed, uh, who have recovered from cancer, uh, without any kind of chemotherapy, without any kind of radiation. Um, I've seen, uh, I've seen people healed of maladies where they'll be anointed on a weekly basis and it will just keep them, uh, well, I, can't explain it. I don't know how. I've seen Parkinson's patients who have unbelievable responses uh, to being anointed on a regular basis. Um, MS patients who have a wonderful response to being prayed for on a regular basis in this way. Um, but does this mean that you'll absolutely be healed? No. Um, 
what is what is very clear um, to me anyway is that um, this last phrase, especially in preparation for death, is key. Um, I've had the occasion several, many, many, many times in, in ministry to uh, show up at the deathbed of someone who's, who's dying. It's, uh, uh, you know, the circumstances are dire, uh, and this person will not recover. Um, or even sometimes they do, but, uh, <laughs> but it doesn't seem that it's going to be that way. Um, and, and have given the anointing of the sick, uh, for those, especially for those who are dying, um, and, uh, and, you know, they die, right? Within a couple days, usually. Um, and what do you say about that? Do you say, well, God healed them? No, you can't say that. <laughs> but what you do say is this, that, uh, that the body is sacred and God cares for it. Um, so much so that what, what do we believe about the body? Yeah, we believe in the resurrection, Right. We don't believe that our bodies are sort of doomed to the dust forever and ever. Um, we believe that the body is made for eternity. Um, and so the body is treated in that way uh, through prayer and by anointing. When someone is dying, uh, the anointing is actually upped, which is, which is a surprising thing. You would think that when someone is just sick, you'd, you'd do all of this anointing and it would be very elaborate. Um, in, in, in the way that we anoint... Um, the, the anointing becomes elaborate when someone is on their deathbed. Um, and so not only the forehead is anointed, but the five senses are anointed. Um, oil is administered at the sign of the cross on the eyelids, on the nose, on the nostrils, on the mouth, on the hands, on the feet, on the earlobes. Okay? Um, and as this is being said, you know, if uh, it's, it's the sort of language of if, if, uh, she has done anything amiss by hearing. So it is to ask for the forgiveness of sins even in death. Um, and usually when people are, uh, you know, if, if you've ever sat with someone who's dying um, and they're, they're in hospice care, um, tend to be rather unresponsive. Um, and yet uh, they receive this, this anointing uh, to that end. To prepare the body even as it's taking its last, last breaths for death. And there are rights given for at the time of death. Um, okay. So any questions there? Okay. This is to say, and I really want to hammer this point home. It's to say that your body is sacred. It's meaningful. Okay. And is this also to say don't go visit a doctor? No. Because doctors are good and they can help you. Okay. And they're, they're exercising real wisdom and real skill. Uh, in healing the body, um, but here's here's the here's the issue, and the issue is this: um, if if we are given to believe, as we should be, that the human body and, and indeed the human person is more than just what you see, right? More than just what you can observe, and that in, in fact we are a totality of body and soul. Um, then we've got to deal with both. Um, and so this goes for Christian doctors. Uh, Burr agrees with me, so I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> but this goes for Christian doctors, Christian nurses, uh, anybody who works in healthcare, and for you as well. Um, don't think of illness as simply being a bodily malady. Because here's the deal. What, is, what, is, what does Scripture tell us as to why we're sick? Why we get sick? Yeah, because of sin, right? Because we're liable to sickness and ultimately death uh, because we're fallen creatures. Um, and uh, so this is to say that um, we who have been redeemed get to experience uh, divine grace um, over our bodies as we experience malady and, and uh, sickness. Um, go ahead. No, not at all. Um, the The anointing, though, is reserved for priests, um, and and that's to say that yeah, we we you know listen. Everybody's encouraged. Lay hands on somebody who's sick and pray for them, please. Uh, but but the anointing is reserved for 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 the priests and, and has been. And you know, part of it is 
uh, this appeal to James and saying, well, James says, you know, call for the elders of the church, the presbyterate, uh, to, to lay hands on them. Uh, so that's, that's certainly the case. All right, should we move on? I apologize. I, I can barely hear myself, and I can't speak very well because of this cold, but I'll, I'll survive, I guess, uh, and hopefully you will too. Um, the forgiveness of sins. What are sins? A sin is any desire or disobedient act that arises out of the falling condition of my human nature and falls short, either by commission or omission, of perfect conformity to God's revealed will. Okay, a sin is any desire or disobedient act that arises out of the fallen condition of my human nature. Okay. So, uh, you know, there's, there's this kind of classic debate. Is desire to sin itself sinful? Yes, okay, <laughs> yes. Um, why? Oh, Sin sin arises from our desires, does it not? Do we sin in ways that we don't desire? No. <laughs> not not usually. Uh sin is sin is rooted in malformed and disordered desires. Um and this is a part of being fallen, right? What happens what happens to Adam and Eve? Even part of the curse, right? Is that their desires will be changed. Remember, God says to the says to the woman, "Your desire shall be for your husband." Okay, um, who's she supposed to desire? God Himself, right? But there's this sort of twisting of desire that takes place in sin. Um, remember what happens with the fruit in the garden. What does she see that the fruit is? She sees that it is to be desired for eating. Um, so as to make one wise. So sin is rooted in desire, uh, specifically disordered desire. Um, so this desire can also be there. One of the, one of the questions, though, people will ask is, when does it really become sin? <laughs> and because uh, you know you can you can often confuse temptation with desire, can you not? Um, and I would say it's when you it's when you get out the blueprints and you start to plan it, right? It's, uh, it's to say, uh, and, and even little things, we start to plan it, right? We start to say, well, if I was to do this, I would do it like this. And sometimes we'll say, hypothetically, if I was to do such a thing, this is how I would do it. Well, go ahead, Don. Yep. Not quite. Nope. Well, there can so I need to say this too. There can be good desires, right? Absolutely. Um, in fact, this is one of the one of the inworkings of divine grace is that we actually receive good desires, um, wonderful desires, desires that come from God Himself. Um, so there has to be there has to be delineation between those. Not all thoughts are evil thoughts, are they? Of course not. Uh, you know, otherwise, why would we bother with education, right? We'd say, well, the, the, the less thinking I do, the better, right? Um, and, and this is to say uh, that we, we have to be clear about what, what's going on here. Um, these are thoughts um, which arise out of our fallen condition. Um, and that's where this, this clarity is really important. Um, and they fall short um, of, God's, of conformity to God's perfect will. So we actually know this, and we know this because we actually have a conscience, right? Um, and a conscience is not sort of the, the angel on your shoulder who speaks in your ear. Um, that's actually not what a conscience is at all. A conscience is the, the formed knowledge with which we undertake actions, in which we, um, in which we interact with, uh, with, with the world, in which we interact with others. Um, we have a... We have a, uh, a body of knowledge that we take into life with us. Um, and it allows us, this conscience allows us um, to, uh, and it's, it's not this, it's not to know what's right and wrong. That's not what the conscience is either. Um, it's to say that um, we have been uh, formed for good or for ill, uh, in virtue or in vice. Um, we have been, uh, we have received these, uh, these many um, 
Uh, well, we've been taught, right? I mean, think about this. How is your, how is your conscience formed? You know, it's when your parents see you do something that's, that's uh, not right, what do they do? They <laughs> say, no, right? No, never. Um, never lie to me again, right? Did you ever hear that one? That's like the worst thing in our house is lying, right? Um, and and we, we know that lying's wrong in a certain sense, don't we? Because we feel guilt over it. But it does fall to this formation of our character uh, to to in a further way, know that. Yeah? Go ahead. My mother did a very good thing when I was ever little, and I never forgot it. I had lied about something, and her being our nightly Bible reading, and she was very earnest, and she said, God hates lies. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And after that, I confessed to everything. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah. It... You know, we, we learn these things, do we not? Um, we learn the ramifications of our sin. We're also formed in our conscience because um, we, we learn over time that, you know, if you undertake a certain action, it will have a certain result, not a good one. Uh, or it'll have a good one. Um, and you, you learn these things over time. Um, but there are two different kinds of sin, ultimately, and I want to get to this. Um, acts of commission or omission. Do you know what the difference is? So acts of commission are what I do, right? So those are those things done. Acts of omission are what? What I don't do. Um, and I would say, by and large, people are very, initially, very, uh, very astute in knowing their sins of commission and not terribly good about knowing their sins of omission. Um, however, probably the majority of your sins are sins of omission. Um, if I was just to venture a guess. Um, and very often people will say, well, you know, I, I, and I, can't, I can't even believe it when this happens, but it does happen. Someone will come and say, you know, I haven't really done anything that awful, right? Okay, well, let's, let's talk about what you haven't done. And then the list starts up, right? Uh, because here's the thing, and this is what's really tough about it. Um, in, in the minds of many today, uh, to repent is simply to give up sin. Is that all of repentance? Hardly. Repentance is, in fact, turning away from sin and towards God's will, um, towards obedience to him, which means that what? We will actually do things instead of not doing them. Right, um, so it is not simply enough to just give up sin. Um, we we are asked and bidden to 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 act a certain way. So sins of omission um, are important to keep in mind. Um, and note, we say this in the liturgy, do we not? Those things what done and left undone, and that's usually the thing is it's left undone. Um, and you know, part of it is also to say. As you notice that things are getting left undone, I don't know if you ever notice this in your own life, but it's like, you know, I should probably pick up that thing that's on the floor, you know, because it'd kill my wife if she had to, like, if she just has to see one more thing on the floor, right? And, and it doesn't bother me, but it bothers her, so I'm going to pick it up, right? Um, and, you know, well, I walk, you know, and this happens to me. I walk right by it, and I think, maybe I should pick that up. And then I keep going a little bit. And the further I get away from that, the more I'm likely to forget it. So right as you find yourself thinking that, oh, you know, I should probably do this, just do it, right? Um, and this is a, a kind of a nice little, uh, little gadget for your mind uh, to, to sort of keep that in practice. But this is to miss, and I think this is key, to miss conformity to God's revealed will. Um, Molly, I'll get to you. Just give me a second. Um, I should say this, most of the ways in which people have been trained to think about uh, moral decisions um, is not explicitly uh, the Christian way of making moral decisions. Um, We are sort of formed in this Kantian way of, I can reason my way through any 
moral question that I have. Um, and I can sort of apply my reason to know what is right and what is wrong. The Christian conviction is this. Uh, that, that would be true if you were trustable or if you were trustworthy as a uh, rational moral agent. What's the problem? You're not, right? <laughs> I'm not, right? Do I always act in a rational way? No. In fact, that's what sin is, is it not? Sin is totally and utterly irrational. Um, because I know it's bad for me, right? I know, that it, I know that it kills my relationship with my creator. I know that it brings untold struggles. Um, and yet, I continue to do it. Um, now, one of my favorite authors, Peter Kreeft, refers to this as, as the proof of our insanity, right? Is that we, we, know what's, we, know what's, we know at the end of the day, we know um, through the formation of our conscience what is right and what is wrong. Uh, but the question is, can we actually do it? Um, so we need something more than that. And I think the, the, the key is to say that we actually, we actually uphold God's revealed will in these matters. Um, and how do we know God's revealed will? Scripture. Primarily scripture. All right, Molly, go ahead. Um, I will, so the, the question is about, I'm doing this for the recording, uh, the question is about corporate sin. You know, at what level of responsibility do we take for corporate sin? Um, and and I, think, I think we can take quite a bit of responsibility for corporate sin. Um, can we take responsibility for unjust laws, for instance? <laughs> Here's how, Okay. So let's say a law is passed and you voted against it. You voted against the you voted against the people who were for it. You you undertook all the actions that would be necessary to 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 avoid it, right? Um, can you be responsible for that? No. Can you be responsible for repealing it? Yes. Can you be responsible for um, for uh, bringing awareness to what's going on with it? Yes. Can you be responsible for uh, what you will do in the light of that unjust law? Yes, you can be. Um, so all of that is to say that, um, yes, there's a certain amount of participation, especially in, a, especially in the kind of democracy that we have today. There's a certain level of participation. Um, are you, however, responsible for airstrikes that happen across the globe? No. Um, now, however, can you can you make your uh, your your frustrations with such things known? Can you make your moral objections known? Yes. Um, there's all of this kind of realm of things because here's the other thing. One is that uh, society there is a corporate aspect to to human life, is there not? It's one of the fundamental convictions about uh, Christian life is that yes, there is a corporate aspect to human life. We have to keep that in mind. Um, so I, th- I think it's a, it's a tricky it's a tricky matter, um, but I think there has to be some balance to it as well. One of the great examples is this: I'll often get people uh, who I'm talking to, and they'll say, "I just feel so guilty for what's happening on the other side of the world, and I can't do anything about it." Um, and in a certain sense, you got to say, "Well, that's right. You can't. You can't do. You're powerless in this situation." Um, now, are you entirely powerless? No. And here's, here's how. First, I would say, if you feel guilt over anything happening in the world, that's a call to prayer, okay? Uh, first and foremost, a call to prayer. It can also be a call uh, to express repentance on behalf of your nation. How's that? Um, and this, this, I think, is something that's happening increasingly and, and something which is actually quite a good thing. Um, for various reasons, we find ourselves on Monday evenings praying uh, for North Korea. 
of all places. Uh, and, and it's surprising to me why we find ourselves, we have, we have people we know in North Korea, um, and we f- I find myself often expressing personally repentance on behalf of our nation with regard to things that have happened in that country. That's a perfectly good thing to do. You say, on behalf of the nation, I express repentance. Um, I've done this with regard to uh, uh, what, what I will say are unjust laws concerning abortion in this country. Um, pray in an act of repentance on behalf of the nation. Because, in a sense, it's all I can really do. Uh, but there also are meaningful actions which can be undertaken, right? Um, actions in the community which can be undertaken. Um, so it, it, you have to kind of weigh that in, in a bit. For instance, I, I made no, uh, made no uh, secret of this. Um, a number of people at Christ Church were in, incredibly involved in getting payday lending uh, uh, city ordinances passed, which limit payday lending. And uh, I think a number of people asked, well, why should Christ Church get involved in this? Well, because people are suffering under the weight of these things. It's unjust what's going on here. And we do have a responsibility to do something about it. Um, And we do have a responsibility to get involved in the community organizing, which is taking place against this, right? This is very important. Um, You know, 600 cars a year are repossessed in in Waco. Um, Now, and, and they're repossessed by people who got involved in title loans, um, and what you're doing is you're taking away someone's livelihood when you do that, and you take away their ability to pay, which, which tells you something, doesn't it? That these loans are not there because they're given to people who can pay them. They're given to people who can't pay them, and the lender benefits from taking, uh, taking the collateral, taking uh, the penalties. Um, so there's a, there's a sense in which we can do something about it. We really can. Um, it's very important that we, t- that we undertake these actions. Um, so I think things have to be held in balance. And they have to be undertaken in prayer, too. So that's a, that's a, that's a major key there. All right. Shall we move on? All right. How does God respond to human sin? All sin is opposed to the holiness of God and is therefore subject to God's condemnation. But God in his mercy offers forgiveness and salvation from sin to all people through the reconciling life death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, this is a recounting of what we've seen before. All sin is opposed to the holiness of God and is therefore subject to God's condemnation. Um, we, uh, we, many people today suffer from a problem of not adequately understanding just how much God condemns sin. Um, I've known many people through the years who say, well, I'm about to do this horrible thing, but God will forgive me. Well, first of all, we have a name for that. It's presumption, right? But in addition to that, it's that you go about it with that kind of attitude. I'm not so sure that's true, right? Um, God condemns sin. All sin is subject to God's condemnation. But, and here's the but, right? So, and I think this this is really key to have. You know, you can't just have the good news all the time, right? Yeah? I mean, what would you think of a news channel that offered 24-7 good news? What would you think of it? I think you would say, well, what's the point? Um, There has to be the bad news accompanying the good news. And the bad news is that sin is subject to God's condemnation. The good news is what? That God in his mercy offers forgiveness and salvation from sin to all people through the reconciling life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> on the one hand, you have original sin, which is the teaching that all of us are subject to this corruption and death, uh, which is the result of sin. On the other hand, you have the good news, which is that God in his mercy offers forgiveness and salvation from sin. Okay. This is, this is very key, especially today, in that um, a lot of people have started to talk about salvation in a more uh, well-rounded way. And this is not problematic, is it? This is actually a very good thing. The problem is when we forget about sin in the midst of that, and we think more about social disease and more in terms of all kinds of other issues um, that we can be saved from, which is great, 
Um, but we can't forget that, um, that salvation is primarily about sin. And, and probably the, the better way to think about it is to expand our understanding of what sin is um, rather than dumbing it down to, to turn up the other speakers, so to speak. Um, that's important. All right. How does God forgive your sins? By virtue of Christ's atoning sacrifice, God sets aside my sins, accepts me, and adopts me as his child and heir in Jesus Christ. Loving me as his child, he forgives my sins whenever I turn to him in repentance and faith. Um, By virtue of Christ's atoning sacrifice, God sets aside my sins, accepts me, and and adopts me as his child. Um, First of all, we believe that what happens on the cross is atonement. Yes? What is atonement? Yeah, bringing back together is one, but it's... It's bigger than that. It's that there's a cost attached to it, isn't there? I mean, if it could all just be sort of glued back together without any cost and cheaply, um, then so be it, right? But there's cost attached to it. Um, our, our atonement costs something. Um, and so it costs in terms of sacrifice, right? Um, and so atonement is always attached to sacrifice for that reason. Um, one particularly important biblical image is that of, is that of the mercy seat. Um, remember, on top of the old Ark of the Covenant, the, the top of it is called the mercy seat. Why? Because every, day, every single year on the Day of Atonement, a priest goes in with a bucket full of blood, uh, and he sprinkles that spot with the blood of that, I think it's a goat. No, it's not a goat. It's a it's a cow. I think. Well, whatever it is, it's a lot of blood. Okay, and the blood goes all over the top of the of of the and and the people's sins are remitted for the year. In Scripture, who is called the the mercy seat? Here's here's a here's if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and He is the propitiation for our sins by propitiation is often understood to be he is the mercy seat for our sins Um, he is the one uh, that has undertaken sacrifice both as priest and as victim for our sins and these these uh, three actions are really important first my sin is set aside meaning what So have you ever had a conversation with somebody and, and, uh, and they're mad at you about something? And they say something like, I'm willing to set all of that aside. Have you experienced the relief that comes from that? I will set all of that aside. Um, that, is, that is one of the most powerful ways in which you can say, I forgive you, right? I set it aside. I no longer hold it accepts me. God accepts me. What does that mean? Is it means that, does it mean that he's accepting in the sense that we use it today? <coughs> it means he takes me back to himself. Right? And adopts me. So an even better, an even more, uh, more radical phrase is he adopts me. Um, he takes me back into his familial love. As his child and heir in Jesus Christ. So not only becoming his child, but becoming his heir, meaning what? Everything he has will be ours. Even his glory will be ours. All right. Loving me as his child, he forgives my sins whenever I turn to him in repentance and faith. Repentance is not a one-time thing, friends. 
And in fact, uh, I'm, I'm often suspicious when there's like these turn-on-a-dime kind of repentance. Not that I don't rejoice in it, because I do, but it's to say it's a tough thing to have this kind of automatic repentance. It doesn't work that way uh, most of the time. We are, we are creatures of habit, right? Habits get deep in us, um, and it takes doing it takes doing virtuous things over and over and over again to be relieved of those habits. Um, so repentance is a lifelong thing, but we can, re- we can express that repentance and turn to that repentance and turn to God in repentance and faith over and over and over again. Um, how many times do I forgive my brother? One of the disciples asks. Seven times? How many times? Seventy times seven. Which is what? <laughs> yeah, just, just a lot, right? Well, why would God say that that ought to be the way we forgive people when he's unwilling to do the same? The answer is he is willing to do the same and does the same. Um, God is a God of forgiveness over and over and over and over again. All right. How should you respond to God's forgiveness? As I live in the grace of God's constant forgiveness... So I should live in constant thanks and praise to him. And as I have been loved and forgiven, so I should love and forgive without limit those who sin against me. Uh, one of the most powerful uh, parables in scripture is the one of the, uh, the servant who, uh, who is forgiven a great debt. Do you remember this? And he goes out to his master's debtors. And what does he do? He grabs him and he says, you owe such and such, and you owe this, and you owe that. In fact, this, this servant is, uh, his, the debt which has been forgiven uh, is, in, uh, in purely academic terms, a bajillion dollars. Okay? Uh, he is, it's, it's an amount so much that it's laughable, right? Um, and yet he is unwilling to be forgiving to others. The debt, against, the debt that he holds has been dropped, and he will not drop the debt against himself. Um, so much of what plagues uh, us is an inability uh, to forgive. We, we want to think that forgiveness is more than it in fact is. We have way too high an expectation as to what forgiveness can be. We think that we actually equate forgiveness with reconciliation. Are they the same thing? Not at all. Now, they're part and parcel with the same whole. But, listen, forgiveness means that you no longer carry around that sin as a debt. I remember um, I was at a camp, and this, uh, this girl was really angry. And at one point, we, said, we just sort of stopped her and said, why are you so angry? And she, and she told us this story. She said, well... Uh, that her aunt had promised to pay for her college, which was something which her 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 working mother, you know, single mom, could not do. It was impossible, and so she made unbelievable grades all the way up through junior through a junior in high school, and she she killed it, knocked it out of the park, did really 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 well. Um, but it was still clear that somebody was going to have to pay for her college. Well, a few weeks before this, her aunt had pulled her aside and said, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, I'm no longer able to pay for your college, can't do it anymore. I've been wiped out. And she carried around this anger. Um, so what this friend of mine did was he's, he, he tied a bandana around a cinder block and made her carry it around. And he said, when you're willing to forgive your aunt, you'll put this thing down. And she gladly carried it for a whole day. Her arms got tired and her arms got, you know, just achy from carrying this brick around. And finally, she in tears just broke and dropped the thing on the ground. It shattered. And she broke down in tears. And she said, I'm ready. (laughs) She forgave her aunt. Now, do do you see what went on? Was there a phone call to the aunt? Not at all. It was about her uh, disposition uh, towards one who had sinned against her. Um, we have to recover this understanding of sin, uh, uh, of being sinned against and then dropping the debt. Just, just dropping it entirely. Um, 
This is not something we see very often, is it? Because, see, part of the thing is in a capitalist system, the holding of debts and paying off debt is a really important thing, right? Taking on lots of debt is really important. Um, but when it comes to the Christian life and when it comes to a life of forgiveness, we have to understand that, that paying debt, um, indeed just simply saying we forgive it, um, is important. Um, so there's that. There was actually a really great illustration of this recently. Was it was it um, was it John Oliver that bought all that uh, all that hospital debt at pennies on the dollar? Some late night talk show host. He bought a bunch of bought, bought a bunch of medical debt for at auction, like for pennies on the dollar. <laughs> and he went around and he started calling people on the phone and said, "Congratulations, your debt's forgiven." He's just calling him on the phone to tell him this. Um. It was an image of what that's like. Because if you've ever been in medical debt, you know, it's a stress. You wake up in the morning and you think, I've got to go to work where I make, you know, I live paycheck to paycheck, so I'm not going to have the extra money that I need to pay this debt. But it's, you know, I'm going to keep doing it. To have someone to come in and advocate for you and pay your debt is an amazing thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's, it's an image of the gospel, is it not? What is grace? Grace is the gift of the triune God's love, mercy, and help, which he freely gives to us, who because of our sin deserve only condemnation. Okay, so first off, what do we deserve? Condemnation. Um, you know, if, if we were weighed on the scales of Veruca salt, we would be the bad egg, yes? You know what I'm talking about? Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory and Veruca Salt, the really nasty, particularly uh, very, um, very, uh, well, really nasty little girl. Uh, she goes up on the scales and that's, it's hilarious. She gets dumped as a bad egg. Anyway, you got to see Willy Wonka. It's great. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, we're all bad eggs, right? Um, no one smells like a rose when it comes to soup. And so God gives us not only forgiveness, not only reconciliation, he also gives us grace. And this is very key. Grace is the gift of the triune God's love. Yes? Which, what does that love consist of? The denial even of the divine self. The divine, you know, who he is, Right? What, what do we read of Jesus in the second, in, uh, second chapter of Philippians? He emptied himself. Mercy. You know what mercy is, right? Mercy is rooted in pity, right? Mercy comes from looking at our condition and feeling uh, and having compassion. We have a pitiable condition of sin. Uh, And God has compassion. And help. So this is very key. In the imagination of many today, grace is simply this. It is simply an overlooking of sin. It's simply, I'm going to ignore it. uh, And save you anyway. (laughs) You've all heard this sermon, right? I'm going to ignore your sin. That's what grace is. Is it that? Not entirely, because there is this important aspect of help. Um, And through the centuries, uh, Christians have spoken of God's grace as being more than just uh, atoning, more than just uh, to overlook our sin in a sort of um, forensic way, but to actually perfect our natures. Um, This is very important uh, for us to get today. Because many people say, well, I'm just a poor sinner, and Lord have mercy on me, and I don't, you know, I can't ever get, I can't ever get any better. I'm just a poor sinner. I'm never going to get any better. Is this, what, is this what we read of in the Gospels? No, we read, the, we read of the riches of divine grace, right? Um, we read of uh, saints being made. How? 
by the inward sanctification of the Holy Spirit, which actually results in, uh, in a restored state. Okay. Um, and this is all freely given to us, who because of our sin deserve only condemnation. So God freely showers his grace on us, who deserve condemnation. And this grace, again, is not merely to say, well, I'm just going to sort of waive that. Um, it's to offer the actual help. So this would, be the, this would be the equivalent of this. It would be for me to say, uh, you know, how much credit card debt do you have? Oh, $35,000. So I'm going to pay it. But, you know, by all means, go out and rack up some more debt, and I'll pay that too. Is that what's going on here? I probably would. But I'm probably going to enroll you in, like, financial classes, yes? I'm probably going to come alongside you and help you to not rack up that debt again. Because if I really love you and I really care about you, then I'm going to seek to see your life transformed. Um, And this is where we've got to get, once again, as the church, with regard to grace. Grace cannot merely be understood as an overlooking of sin. Um, and, And isn't that the case? I mean, look, today we receive the grace of the Eucharist, yes? Is this simply to say, oh, you know, I know you're horrible, but I'm going to give you my body and blood anyway, and that'll just be fine. No, what is it for? To preserve us, yes. But even even above me on that, to wash us. Remember that prayer in the prayer of humble access? That our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body. Our souls washed with his most precious blood. A divine grace must have its result, yes? And the result has to be um, our sanctification. Um, So I I end there, uh, but keep that in mind. That is is, um, the purpose of divine grace, again, is not simply to forgive us, but it's also to sanctify us. Sanctifying grace is is immensely important. And uh, anyway, we'll we'll begin next week. with finishing up this section on the forgiveness of sins, and then we'll talk about the resurrection of the body. Perfect Advent theme, right?